So how does a word like Palestine get used in a Bible talking about the conquest of Canaan? I mean, it's hundreds of years out of date. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, Did you hear about the speech of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas just a few days ago? If you heard about it through CNN, you got the sanitized version. You didn't hear the worst of what he had to say. We'll tell you the truth about that. It is thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire. For those watching on YouTube and Facebook, you will be hearing our audio feed as everyone does on radio. But because of the blizzard, the storm, the legitimate snowstorm that we had yesterday, uh, there's basically no access to our building parking lot. So because of that, I am broadcasting from a remote location. So radio, audio, as always on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, but no video. However... The phone number remains the same, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Any Jewish-related question you have, any question about Israel today, any question about Judaism, any question that relates to Hebrew language and Bible, things like that, Jewish-related questions only, that's what we'll take on this Thursday, 866-34-TRUTH. Last night... I got a note from my friend Scott Volk, and by the way, we are planning out our next tour for Israel. We'll be we'll be announcing details of that for you very shortly in 2019, God willing. But Scott shot me a note. He he's been reading the NASB for many years. It's one of the most respected modern translations of the Bible. It's, it's known, especially for the New Testament, for being probably the most word-for-word translation out there. You can't do perfectly word-for-word from one language to another. But the NASB, even if the language is not going to read as smoothly, will we'll, we'll go closer to word-for-word, which many uh, Greek scholars appreciate with the New Testament. In any case, there's nothing anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish about the translation. Uh, someone pointed out to me that it consistently footnotes where it says James that in the, the footnote it mentions that it's actually Jacob in Greek, which is very positive in terms of the Jewish roots of the faith. But, but Scott sent me a screenshot last night, and he had, he, had never, he had never noticed this before. And then when he started to dig a little bit, he, he was even more surprised. So he sent me screenshots from an actual physical Bible, one that was produced by Cambridge University Press, and... It had a, a heading, a section heading before Joshua 10, 29. So this is not the, the, the scripture itself. These are the headings, you know, the bold headings that tell you what's coming next. So it's not technically part of the Bible translation. But if you see it in place after place after place in all the different print versions, for example, or in the online versions, then you realize, okay, th- this, this must be incorporated in the official translation somehow. So Joshua 10, 29, it says, Joshua's conquest of southern Palestine. Southern Palestine, the nation of Israel as a whole, that area was not 
called Palestine until after the destruction of the Second Temple when Hadrian renamed it. Joshua's conquest of southern Palestine. Then he began to look at different online editions. He went to Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, his Liridian Pocket Bible, which is found in the, in the Logos app. And he found, for example, this heading before Joshua 11.1, Northern Palestine taken. Uh, what? It, uh, that, that would be like me saying Christopher Columbus discovers the United States or the rule of Genghis Khan extends into the Soviet Union or, or T.E. Lawrence was famously known as Lawrence of Saudi Arabia. All these things are completely anachronistic, completely out of time order. It would be like, you know, saying that, uh, you know, 500 years ago, someone went to Washington, D.C. There was no such place as Washington, D.C. If you said 500 years ago, someone went to this area, which today is called Washington, D.C., that's one thing. But that's not what this is saying. Joshua's conquest of southern Palestine Northern Palestine taken. So uh, we're trying to get to the root of how this happened. Something this anachronistic. A colleague of mine just said that when he read my article that I wrote about it, and I've got this all written out for you, which is uh, on our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. But someone that uh, knows the folks involved with the NASB is going to reach out to them to see if we can get this corrected. Because, again, it's a fine translation we're just trying to find out how this happened. By all means, use the NASB. It's a great translation. But if you look at Joshua 11.1, 1, for example, on various uh, translations that you can get, just go to the Bible Gateway website, for example. You've got Joshua's conquest of the north, conquest of northern Canaan. Israel defeats the northern coalition, the northern campaign, conquest of northern cities, the northern conquest, northern kings defeated, conquering the north. These are all from uh, Lexham Translation, ESV, NET, ISV, CSB, New King James, MEV, TLV. There is no reason to put Palestine in there because the name did not exist. Now, now here's what's interesting. The Palestinian viewpoint is to retroject everything and to make Jesus into a Palestinian messenger. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at a, a speech that was given by Mahmoud Abbas uh, a ways back. And, uh, oh, let's see here. Uh, Melanie Phillips wrote about it June 2014. Jesus was a Palestinian, the return of Christian anti-Semitism. And, and uh, she's talking about this idea of Jesus being a Palestinian. He, he is no longer an Israeli Jew. He's no longer a Judean Jew. He's a Palestinian and therefore, you identify him with the cause of the, the Muslim world fighting against Israel rather than with the cause of, of Israel. And I don't mean that Jesus is taking a nationalistic side. I mean that you're stripping him of his identity and his roots. Uh, not only so, the idea that the children of Israel ever were given the land of Canaan by God presents a problem today. In other words, didn't they drive out the Canaanites at divine order? Didn't they slaughter those that fought and resisted? Didn't they drive out others? Didn't they take the land as given to them by God? The answer is yes, they did. Well, doesn't that present a problem? Now, you could say, well, no, no problem. God gave it to them then. 
They sinned and disobeyed. God kicked them out of the land, and now it's not theirs anymore. You could be a Christian and perhaps hold to that view, which is an erroneous view, but you can hold to that view. But there are Palestinian Christians that some of my friends have dialogue with, and they have a hard time with what the Old Testament says itself. Because it would, it would seem that the Old Testament is advocating, well, the land belongs to the Jews. They can drive out and kill anybody they want, as if they could do that today. So it's wrong for a Christian to say, well, God gave them the land then, they send, and he took it away, and they're banished forever. That's wrong. That's unscriptural. It's also wrong if a Jew was to say, well, God gave us the land then, and we can drive out anybody we want. Uh, we can drive them out today. That would be a wrong application. But the right application was, it's God's land. It's up to God to distribute it however he wants, to give it to whomever he wants. And it's not based on merit. It's based on his grace and his purpose. And just as he gave the land to Israel as a, as a lasting inheritance before the Sinai covenant by promise to Abram, God can restore the Jewish people back to the land whenever he wants, and because he's God, he cares about justice and fairness for all. There's a famous commentary, the most famous rabbinic commentary to the Bible, written about a thousand years ago. It asks the question, why does the, the book of Genesis start with the creation account? Why not start with something else? Why not start with just the first laws, like Exodus 12, where God gives the laws for Passover? I mean, if the Torah is there to teach us how to live, and the Torah is there to give us God's precepts, then why start with the creation account? doesn't seem to make any sense. And the answer is, well, the reason it starts with the creation account is to show that God created everything and he owns everything, and that the land belongs to him, and he can give it to whomever he wants. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to why the Bible starts with the creation account than that, but it reminds us of the fact that it's God's land, it's God's world, and it's up to him to give it to whom he wants. So there's an article that uh, I'm, I'm looking at, and it's it's pretty intensely uh, written article. And, uh, oh, hang on, uh, just, oh, did I do that? Did I just... Click to, okay, hang on, let me get it back on my screen here. I just unclicked it. One second, and I'll, I'll get it up for you. Okay, so um, there's an article very passionately written on a, um, a website, uh, Bint Jabil website, so a, a, an Arabic website, confronting the Bible's ethnic cleansing in Palestine. And it's written by Michael Pryor, and it, it asks certain questions. It quotes John Mahoney, is Yahweh the great ethnic cleanser? Did he not instruct the Israelites to rid their promised land of its indigenous people? And he says that Dr. Pryor, who's professor of biblical studies in the University of Surrey, England, and visiting professor in Bethlehem University, Palestine, is going to answer that. And, and his, he is, he's going to argue that Israel is trying to practice ethnic cleansing today. He starts by saying it's mid-October 2000. To date, at least 98 Palestinians and seven Jews have been killed and over 3,000 mostly Palestinians injured in the Holy Land's most recent unholiness. That's the math of it. Uh, it is, however, the morality of it that has engaged me over the past quarter of a century and he's wrestling with this. Okay, does the Bible just tell the Jewish people to drive out 
the, uh, uh, the, the ethnic inhabitants of the land. Is Israel doing that now? Was Israel guilty of ethnic cleansing back then? And he addresses these issues at some length. Here's the point of it all. We have to understand that ultimately this is God's business. It is God's business to determine boundaries and where people live and what nation gets what territory. This is God's business. And the one thing he has clearly sketched out in the Bible is that this piece of land is ultimately for his Jewish people, not them alone. Others can live there with them, but it is ultimately for his Jewish people. And it is a Jewish Jerusalem that will welcome him back. As for the name Palestine, that's not used for the area as a whole until, as I said, after the temple, second temple was destroyed. I mean, completely anachronistic to call the ancient land Palestine. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. So glad to be on the broadcast with you. Listen, this coming May, I'm scheduled to speak for the first time at the biannual Christ at the Checkpoint Conference in Bethlehem. Many Jewish believers in Israel stand strongly against it, even though they work regularly with Palestinian Christians, with Arab Christians for reconciliation. They spend time in prayer together. They do annual retreats together. They do events together. And yet many strongly oppose this, believing it's just being used for propaganda purposes to make Israel look bad, and that that's the whole purpose of it, so that they use people like me that will come and say, oh, no, look, we're open to various viewpoints. So I was aware of that concern. Other Messianic Jews think it's important to do this, but I was aware of the concern. I felt it was the Lord's will that I did accept the invitation. And they were very candid with me. We're inviting you to come because we know how strongly you disagree with our perspective. We want you to present it. We want you to hear ours. I said, great. And uh, I said, can I quote you in terms of why you invited me, and et cetera, and that I can freely speak about Islam and anything else? Yes. And then, by God's grace, because we've got a great platform, we've got radio, we've got TV, we've got social media, so every week we can literally reach millions of people I felt if they did, in fact, want to use this for their own PR purposes, I'm, I'm believing the best, I'm trusting the best and expecting the best from Christian brothers, but if, in fact, they did want to use this for their own propagandistic purposes, well, we perhaps have a louder voice and a larger platform to expose that, to set that right. So my, my hope is that there will be folks who will listen. And that I can challenge some things. And I absolutely plan to challenge them on their solidarity with the Palestinian Authority. I want to invite them to renounce evils by the Palestinian Authority against Israel. And to say, we stand against this because we are followers of Jesus. I want to invite them to do that. We shall see what happens. But please pray that God would be glorified. 
that Jesus would be central. If this is Christ at the checkpoint, then let Jesus be exalted. You say, what's the checkpoint? Well, there at the conference in Bethlehem, you'll see that for people to get from Bethlehem into the rest of Israel, there's a checkpoint that they have to go through. If you've ever gone across the border from U.S. to Canada or U.S. to Mexico, you have a border crossing. Sometimes you have to wait for hours to, to cross. and So you have delays, you have issues like that crossing over. And then for security purposes, Israel built a wall in, in some places. It's primarily a fence, a security fence. But it's, it's separate. it wasn't there before. Now it's, it's not just an eyesore. It separates Bethlehem from the rest of Israel proper and it just makes life more difficult. Of course, Israelis don't like it either. That wall was just put up to keep snipers and murderers out. And it's been very successful. I mean, the, the, the rate of, of terror attacks has dropped by what, close to 99% in those areas since the, the barrier was put up. But uh, there's a reason that they're checkpoints, and I say it's not Israel's fault, it's the fault of the Palestinian Authority and radical Islam and Islamic hatred for Jews, because you don't have those checkpoints uh, in Israel proper, do you? You don't have those pre- checkpoints when you, when you go, when I say Israel proper, I mean where it was undisputedly controlled by Israel. You don't have those checkpoints, and yet you have, what, a million and a half Arabs living there, Palestinians, they'd be called, living there. Why? Because they're not trying to kill their neighbors. If they were, then they'd be expelled or put in prison, or you'd you'd have to work out some other security solution. So I'm looking forward to that. Pray that Jesus indeed will be glorified. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, let's, uh, let's go to... Uh, our friend Todd in Seagrove, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, I have a two-part question from Chapter 8 of Ezekiel. Uh, okay. The first part is, what is the image of jealousy? And secondly, uh, what is meant by putting the branch to their nose? Yeah, okay. Putting the branch to the nose is something that I, I looked at a lot years ago because it's such a controversial statement we we don't know for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the IVP Bible background commentary. It says there's an Akkadian expression, Laban Api, that refers to a gesture of humility used to come contritely before a deity with a petition. When this act is portrayed in art, the worshiper has his hand positioned in front of his nose and mouth and is sometimes shown with a short cylindrical object in his hand from the Sumerian tale called Gilgamesh in the land of the living, there is some evidence that what is held as a small branch cut off a living tree. This would suggest that in Ezekiel, the people are putting on a show of humility. It must be admitted, however, that these connections are very hazy and the significance may lie somewhere else entirely. In other words, we really don't know what it means. People are just trying to speculate. Is it you know, some act of worship or false sign of humility? But honestly, we don't know. The, the top scholars have debated this and we simply don't know. As, as for the idol of, of jealousy, it's interesting that in Second Chronicles, the 33rd chapter, that when uh, Manasseh sets up a, an image of, of Asherah, uh, it's referred to in similar ways as, as uh, something that provokes jealousy. So we don't know exactly what it was, but there was obviously some type of idol some type of uh, idolatrous image that was right there in the temple. And because of that, uh, 
it was it was called the idol that provokes to jealousy. So we don't know specifically which idol, but that's certainly uh, what it was. Some some other type of idolatrous image that was there in the temple, and therefore the idol that provokes jealousy. Eight six six three four truth. Um, yeah, let's just see here. Okay, you know, I've challenged, I've challenged the folks at Christ at the Checkpoint. If you want reconciliation, then why does your Facebook page, your blog, why do you just attack Israel day and night and post negative things about Israel day and night? It does not seem to be any type of balance whatsoever. So here uh, from their blog, as tear gas and sound bombs sound outside my office on this declared day of rage in response to the United States current administration decision to... Hang on. Let me scroll down here. Uh, that's somehow I'm not scrolling. Here we go. Uh, in response to the United States current administration's decision to declare Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, I implore you to consider the way of Jesus. Harmful interpretation of prophecy and subsequent theology is literally killing people. Isn't this remarkable? This is a Palestinian Christian position, and this is what I take issue with. How utterly remarkable. President Trump recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which it is historically and practically and functionally presently, that didn't kill anyone, that didn't hurt anyone, that, that there was no bloodshed because of that. The bloodshed or the uproar was people protesting against it. So, so picture this. You say because of, of a, uh, because of some, problems we've had in our area, we're declaring a state of emergency. We've, we've had a natural disaster. We're declaring a state of emergency. Because of that, some people who don't like the decision begin to protest in the streets and start killing people. And you say, man, that proclamation of a state of emergency killed people. No, no, the state of emergency was something that needed to be done. And now people reacted to it. They're the ones harming. So if you're going to preach Jesus to someone, preach it to the protesters. Don't, don't preach it to the Christians who, who are applauding the president for doing what's right. Preach it to the ones that are stirring up trouble. <clears throat> and as a result of them stirring up trouble, Israel is going to put down dangerous protests? Yes. But, but who is at fault? The protesters or the ones putting down the protests? 866-34-TRUTH. All right, we go over to Killeen, Texas. Jerichia, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Can you hear me good? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, hey, I um, had a quick question. Uh, I've been studying the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, for a while now. And I, I, like, uh, from a Jewish perspective, well, when I read the Torah... Uh, from a Christian perspective, and I read commentaries on the Torah, a lot of Christian commentaries really don't have in-depth information of what I'm trying to find. I don't know if you have any good um, references in the Talmud or any type of uh, Jewish literature that would help me expand and understand the Law of Moses in, in, a, in a greater perspective. What, what are you trying to understand? Well, no, I, I, uh, it, it's a personal study. I, you know, I, I just want to understand it a lot more. And, uh, you know, the meat spots and, um, and, and understand the law in, in, in the proper context and, and why God gave it and specific laws. And 
either cultural laws, moral laws, ceremonial laws, sacrificial laws, and, and, and you know, just study them more in depth. I didn't know if you had any um, references that, that, that are really good from a Jewish perspective that I could uh, study. Well, if it's from a Jewish perspective, that's what you're going to get. In, in, in other words, uh, when, when you, if you're, if Talmud is not where you want to go, that would, that would endlessly confuse you. You need a massive orientation to that. But if you're going to read it from a Jewish perspective, you're not going to get the original Torah. You're going to get later Jewish interpretation, understanding, reflection. Here's a useful book, a, a good place to, to start, a book I've just been looking at um, oh, a few weeks back. It's by Roy Gain, G-A-N-E, and it's called Old Testament Law for Christians, Original Context and Enduring Application. Roy Gain, G-A-N-E, Old Testament Law for Christians, Original Context and Enduring Application. Good place to start. It'll give you further insight from there, further references. But that's a, that's a good place to start. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on the Line of Fire. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown, 866-34-TRUTH, with your Jewish-related questions, 866-348-7884. I I have a question for you. Uh, Who was it that played in the uh, Palestine Symphony Orchestra, which was founded in 1936? Palestine Symphony Orchestra. It was Jews. Today, that is the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra, but originally the Palestine Symphony Orchestra, founded in 1936. Or how about this? The Palestine Post was founded in 1932. You know what that's been since after the establishment of the State of Israel? The Jerusalem Post. In other words, the people that took on the name Palestine, Palestinian as an identity were Jews because this was their homeland and it had been called Palestine for a long time. So when they lived there, they, they took on the identity as the Palestinians. You did not have that identity for the Arabs living there that had never been a homeland for them or a a state for them. It was part of greater Syria. It was controlled by others. But no one thought of, okay, this is, we'll make this a country, a state. No one thought in those ways. So Palestinian uh, would have referred to a Jew. And again, the region as a whole was named Palestine by Hadrian. After the Second Jewish Revolt, 132 to 135, it was then put down, Jews banished from Jerusalem, and what would have been historically the land of Israel became known as Palestine, named after Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Now, there's a reference uh, that was pointed out to me today from Herodotus, so about 500 years before the time of Jesus, who references Palestine or Palestine, there's a question on the spelling there, as to one part of the land there. And if so, that would have been related to the Philistines who were living in the five coastal cities, now Gaza Strip being a good approximation of that. So there would have been some reference to them 
and then a couple of other Greek writers reference it, but it's never a name for the land as a whole, never. And to speak of, of uh, the Jewish people living in Palestine 3,000 years ago is anachronistic. That would like be talking about the Native Americans living in the United States 1,000 years ago. Uh, so there's this constant battle as to whose land it is, but even naming it Palestine is, thank God it's not called that as a whole anymore. But if you look at, say, Palestinian textbooks, you'll see Israel doesn't even exist. And this has been well documented. Israel doesn't even exist. You just have Palestine. And why? Because there is, in, in, in that mindset, no legitimacy for the Jewish people being there. They are occupiers. They don't belong. They need to be driven out. So Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas gives a speech. He has been increasingly angry with Israel and with America since President Trump has has stated plainly that Jerusalem will be recognized as the capital. And uh, as President Trump has pressured the Palestinians and said, you don't really want peace, they've been pushing back. So, so check this out. This is a speech that Abbas gave a few days back. Quote, colonialism created Israel to perform a certain function. It is a colonial project that has nothing to do with Judaism, but rather used the Jews as a tool under the slogan of the promised land. He also said the Jews did not want to emigrate even with murder and slaughter. Even during the Holocaust, they did not emigrate. By 1948, Jews in Palestine were no more than 640,000, most of them from Europe. Um, He also said Ben-Gurion did not want Middle Eastern Jews to come to Israel, but when he saw the vast land, he was forced to bring Middle Eastern Jews. They didn't want to come. From Yemen, they flew 50,000 Jews. They didn't suffice with 50,000. They went to Iraq, which had large reserves of Jews. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable uh, to read this. Some horrific statements, ugly statements, false statements. But as camera.org points out, and camera, by the way, stands for Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America, Abbas sanitized, excuse me, CNN sanitized Abbas's speech. As it reports, CNN's account of Mahmoud Abbas's dramatic speech Sunday was a blatant whitewash completely skipping over the Palestinian Authority president's hateful and false statements about Jews, as well as his call to arms. Among the Palestinian leaders' falsehoods was his denial of any connection between Judaism and the Holy Land. Now it's just colonialism reestablished this. Uh, The assertion that Jews preferred to be murdered in the Holocaust rather than come to pre-state Israel, whereas the fact is the British authorities would not let Jews come into Israel, except for a trickle during the Holocaust. They tried to flee, but they they were not welcome. And Abbas is charged that Israel is sending drugs to Palestinian youth. So New York Times even reported some of this accurately. Uh, Times of Israel, of course, reports it accurately. And, and CNN basically whitewashes the speech. I mean, why, why in the world would they do that? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, listen, to, uh, listen to what Abbas said. We always and forever adhere to negotiations as the path to reach a political set- settlement with Israel. We don't want war. We will not call for military war with Israel. Whoever has weapons, go ahead and do it. I say this out in the open. If you have weapons, go ahead. I'm with you and I will help you. Anyone who has weapons can go ahead. I don't have weapons. I want the peaceful political path to reach a settlement. So you say, hey, we're going to work for peace, but you got weapons, go ahead. Go for it. Extraordinary, huh? Did you hear about that much in the news? 866-34-TRUTH. 
Uh, let's go to West Bloomfield, Michigan. Deborah, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, this um, Dr. Brown. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry about the. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Go ahead. Okay, I have. I don't know how many questions. There's a lot of questions floating in my mind. <laughs> so let right. me ask three. Is that okay with you? All right. Well, we'll see how quickly we can answer them. Okay. Number one, my question is on the topic of Elijah coming back in in the after the Mount of Transfiguration event. Uh, Jesus made a reference to Elijah coming back to restore all things. And I would like to know if it's uh, either referring to what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation or what's going to happen during the millennium, like when, when the ultimate restoration is going to take place. Or Because I, I think that, I mean, I, I may be wrong, but I just want to get your, your thoughts. I think that there's a triple fulfillment, um, that the first fulfillment is from uh, John the Baptist and the, um, coming, the coming of the Messiah. Okay. After John the Baptist, and then the yep. second fulfillment is the uh, Great Tribulation, when the two witnesses will come and you know bring the world back to God, basically. And then the ultimate fulfillment is the Millennium. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so we we know that there's a prophecy at the end of Malachi that God would send His servant Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And mm-hmm. then we know that questions come up to John the Immerser, John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And then uh, he denies it. And then Jesus later says, if you had received it, then he was Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it's clear that John was not Elijah reincarnate, but he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. That's, that's number one, so that's clear. Number two, the Bible does speak of the restoration of all things about the millennial kingdom. Uh, for example, Acts the third chapter, that this time of the restoration of all things spoken of by the prophets will come to pass. And then Jesus in Matthew 19 speaks of the, the renewing of all things when the apostles will sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. So I, I do see for sure that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth, that'll be that time of the restoration of all things. The question is, will there be another figure, an Elijah-type figure, that prepares the way for his second coming? Some say that's the role of the church as a whole, that the believers as a whole will do that. Uh, you know, some look at you know, the two witnesses in Revelation 11 as, as playing a special role in preparing the way for the Lord. Is, is that actually two people, or is that speaking of a prophetic people? So uh, in, in, any, in any case, the, uh, we, we can't be totally sure or dogmatic. Uh, obviously, traditional Jews would still be looking for an Elijah-type figure. But the larger thing of the restoration of all things, that is something still to come, and that will come when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth and rules and reigns in a glorious way during what we call the millennium. So we'll, we'll, we'll just stop there with that question and go to your second question. Okay, question number two um, also has to do with the millennium and the end times and all that. So my second question is about after God does 
judge of the nations, will there still be a remnant that will still turn their hearts back to God? Because I, I, um, I know in the book of Revelation, there's a situation where um, there's going to be a lot of people who won't repent in spite of all that God God is doing to bring the nation back or bring the world back to back to Him. Will there still will there still be a remnant after the uh, God judges the nations or after the millennium they'll return back to God? Okay, so here here's what we understand. You don't want to be too dogmatic about future events and exactly how they're going to unfold because there's often uh, th- things that become clearer as as we get closer to them. Jesus told his disciples plainly, I'm going to die and rise for the dead, and they couldn't understand what he was talking about. So a lot of things we shall see as they unfold. Craig Keener and I are working on a book together on why we don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. We'll lay out our, our, our views about the end times in, in that book. But if we look at the millennial kingdom, as best as I understand the text, Zechariah 14 tells us that the survivors of the nations that attack Jerusalem will enter into the millennial kingdom. And this will be a time when Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, but it will be an extraordinarily glorious time, the most glorious time the earth has ever seen, where the the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. And it will be a time of great peace and universal knowledge of God. People will still sin. There will still be death. Uh, It appears there will be multiplication of of people, the human race during that time, but it will be an unprecedented time of, of glory. And we who have been redeemed will rule and reign together with Jesus. At the end of that time, if we're rightly understanding the text, Revelation 20 says that Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit, from a place of of, uh, captivity, and he will lead a rebellion against the Lord. You say, a rebellion? Why would anybody want to rebel? Well, to me, that's one of the purposes of the millennium, to ultimately reveal human hearts. I'll explain that on the other side of the break. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Shouts, shouts of joy, and victory yeah, I love it. Paul Wilbur singing Shouts of Joy. That is a toe-tapping, jumping, shouting, praising song by one of my dear Messianic Jewish friends and worship leaders. This is Michael Brown. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. So uh, just getting back to uh, Deborah in West Bloomfield, Michigan. By the way, how's the weather there? Um, it's cold, snowy, and all that. <laughs> Yeah, but you're but, you're used to you're used to that. When when we get snow, I'm in North Carolina now. Literally, mm-hmm. the governor called for a state of emergency yesterday because of a uh, snow. Okay, so here's the question: Why will some rebel, or many rebel, at the end of the millennial kingdom? And and why would God have a time of of perfect peace on the earth and universal knowledge of God and glorious worship and the nation streaming to Jerusalem to learn His laws and teaching? Why in in the why in the world uh, will that happen and then have rebellion at the end? This is what I understand. 
a lot of people reject God because things aren't right in this world. It's not fair. If God is good, why is there so much suffering? And on and on. And I understand why people struggle with those things. Or why is evil allowed to, to exist without being punished? If there was a truly good God, why did he let this happen to my family and so, so like on? like the, the concept of theodicy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, during the millennium, those questions will not exist. During the millennium, God will rule perfectly over the world. And, and the world will be exposed to the goodness and beauty and holiness of God. And still, at the end of it, there will be those who rebel. It, 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 it ultimately vindicates the fact that the problem is human rebellion. That's the issue. Human sin, human rebellion. That separates us from God. So to me, that's the, the, one of the offshoots of the millennium. Not only will God fulfill the promises he gave to Israel, and be glorified in this world before we enter the eternal kingdom. It will be this opportunity, just like Adam and Eve sinned in a perfect environment when there was no justification for it, or Satan sinned in a perfect heavenly environment. Here, human beings as a race, many will rebel and turn. And this ultimately does what Psalm 51 says, let God be true and every man prove the liar. All right, your third question. Okay, my third question. So, about... Same same uh, topic of the millennium and the end times. So we know that God's going to reign from Jerusalem, from uh, from Israel, specifically from Jerusalem and all that. And we know that in the Old Testament, there's a lot of prophecies that talk about God's going to restore Israel back to their land and that God's going to restore Israel back to God. So basically... Um, it means that God can restore individual lives back to God as well, right? Even yeah, like so, those that have backslidden and all that. Right. So you're not going to have a glorious physical restoration of Israel without hearts being changed. You know, it would it would be like taking someone that's dying of cancer. Uh, they're living in a smelly little apartment in a in a rundown uh, neighborhood and they're dying of cancer, so now you're going to bring them into a beautiful house while they die of cancer. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason for a beautiful physical restoration if there's not a restoration from the inside. So in my analogy, there's no reason to put them in a nice uh, uh, house if you haven't healed the cancer. So uh, ultimately, the greatest promises that God's given to Israel is that he'll bring us into the new covenant, that he'll remember our sins no more, that he'll put his Torah, his teaching in our hearts and our minds so that we will just obey him. And, and not like the Sinai covenant written in stone that we broke and disobeyed, but a new covenant written on our hearts. That's the greatest thing that God would do. And with that comes physical restoration and blessing. So what I understand scripture to promise is not that every Jew who ever lived in history will be saved. Absolutely not. And not that at the end of the age, guaranteed every single Jew on the planet will be saved. But what does seem clear is that there will be a national turning. Just like Jews as a people do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah today, and the more religious you are as a Jew, the less inclined you'd be to follow him, that it will be the exact opposite at the end of the age, that there will be a national turning of the Jewish people. Now, we don't know uh, what remnant will remain. The, it seems there'll be great upheaval over the whole earth, including in Israel. 
that there'll be a time of suffering and persecution over the whole earth, including in Israel, but that there will be national turning. I, I see Paul writing about it, Romans 11. I see Zechariah prophesying about it in Zechariah 12, and Jeremiah prophesying about it in Jeremiah 31, and other passages that go in the same direction. So it does not mean that any Jew who lived in history is somehow automatically saved. No, no. Jewish people are lost, just like Gentiles are lost. And Paul lays out in Romans 2 that judgment will come first to the, uh, the Jewish people, first to the Jewish people, and then to Gentiles, just like the gospel goes first to the Jewish people and then to Gentiles. But at the end of the age, I fervently believe, I truly believe that there will be a national turning and that we will see mass salvation of Jewish people and it will be one of the most glorious things that's ever happened in the history of the world and the history of God's people on the earth. Hey, Deborah, thanks for your questions and your enthusiasm. Be blessed and stay warm. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. All right, let's just see here. Uh, okay, so it looks like, uh, all right, it looks like this error that I pointed out about Palestine being used in the section headings in the NASB will be corrected uh, at the next update in 2019. Now, this is not directly from the NASB publishers. I talked about this in the first half hour. You can read more about it in my article um, in in a. Uh, uh, that's just been published today about why a Bible translation would use the word Palestine. But, uh, okay, yep, got it. So apparently, yeah, so, okay. In, in any case, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be fixed. So glad to know that, and I will, I will certainly append that to the article. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Uh, just let's go back for a moment to the Palestinians. Let's go back for a moment to what happens with the Palestinian Authority and one of the great issues that I have with Christians in Bethlehem at the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference is that I do not hear them renouncing this evil. But basically, in much of the Palestinian world, if you are a terrorist and you kill Israelis, you become a hero. If you are killed in the process, you are now a shaheed. You are a holy martyr. And the Palestinian Authority has paid the, the, uh, the families that have lost, say you lost your son, you lost your, your husband, your father. Uh, the families of the terrorists, murderers, will get a stipend for many years. In fact, they'll be better off than someone just working a regular job. If, if you are imprisoned for terrorist activities against Israel, uh, then your family will get a supplement from Palestinian Authority. And this is something that President Trump has said to Mahmoud Abbas, you keep doing that, we're going to withhold aid from you. Why, why are we going to give you money knowing that out of money we give you, you're going to take it to pay and reward the families of terrorists who slaughtered Israeli children and women and men in cold blood? And, and why celebrate these people? Why name kindergartens after them? Why name yes, uh, parks after them? So I'm looking at uh, palwatch.org, and it's got a Facebook page of the Fatah Movement's Bethlehem branch, January 11th, 2018. Abbas's Fatah glorifies 
terrorist murderer of nine and members of terror group on its Facebook page with photos showing the terrorists behind crossed rifles. Yeah, terrorist murder of nine is celebrated. They are, they are all shaheeds. They are martyrs. They are holy witnesses. And, and you're talking about people that carried out horrific acts. One of them, Salah Khalaf, uh, PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat's, depu- Arafat's deputy, one of the founders of Fatah and head of the terror organization Black September, uh, he planned, uh, attacks he planned included the murder of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics, probably the most infamous of all, 1972, the murder of two American diplomats, Sudan, 1973. Uh, it is commonly assumed that his assassin, a former Fatah bodyguard, was sent by the Abu Nidal organization, a rival Palestinian faction. In other words, here is a terrorist who himself was killed by other rival terrorists, and he's being celebrated today as, as a great example and martyr by the Palestinian Authority, by the uh, Fatah, the Bethlehem branch, just this month. So I, I'm asking Palestinian Christians, will you raise your voice and renounce this? Will you devote time at the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference in May to renouncing this evil of glorifying terrorists and mass murderers of Israelis? And if not, how can you give any credence to the idea of Christ at the checkpoint? Does not Jesus care about these things? Does not the blood of the slain cry out for justice? Instead of justice, you celebrate the memory of the murderers. That's wrong. That's wrong. And as one with an invitation to speak at the conference, by God's grace, I do hope and pray that you will have listening ears and will renounce what is wrong and will stand together with me for justice. And where Israel does wrong to Palestinians, I will stand with you. Back with you tomorrow. You've got questions. We've got answers.